Good morning, Peachtree. What a privilege, what a joy it is for us to gather together, to be a part of the spiritual unity that is the family of what it means to be a part of Peachtree. So glad that you are with us today. And I want to begin today by telling you a time when I was gathering together a group of guys to be in a small group, a kind of a Bible study. And none of these guys had ever been in a small group or a Bible study before. And so we were gathering and as we were kind of settling into our chairs, I asked them if they had any questions. And one of the guys with a Northeast accent, you know, was very brash and basically, so what is it that we're exactly doing here? What, what's the goal? And all of a sudden you could just see the light bulb go on above his head. And he's like, wait a minute, are you here to make us more religious? Of course, this made me absolutely laugh out loud at the nature of him asking a question like this. And I actually took a deep breath, looked at him and said, no, my goal is not to make you more religious. My goal is to make you more alive. And he leaned into that and he said, how is that going to happen? And I said, well, it's not going to be by you becoming more religious. It's going to be you having more and more of the gospel. And he's like, I've heard that term. What does that actually mean? And I said, well, that's why you are here. We're in the midst of a series through the Gospel of John where we are discovering the life-giving belief that is promised. At the end of the Gospel of John, he says this. He says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The goal of why he is writing is to introduce you to this life that is teeming with life, an abundant life, an eternal kind of life. And we're describing that by saying that life means that certain things are no more or no longer. You are no longer cynical. You are no longer empty. You are no longer religious. You're no longer ashamed, no longer paralyzed, no longer hungry, condemned, blind, vulnerable, no longer grieving, no longer two-faced, and no longer insignificant. Today, we're going to talk about you becoming no longer religious. And you're like, wait a minute, isn't this a church broadcast? Exactly. Let me introduce you to a very religious man by the name of Nicodemus who encounters Jesus. John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. And then skipping down to verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but to save the world through him. Looking at John chapter 3 and the story of Nicodemus, I want us to answer and to enter into four questions today. Questions like, what is the gospel? Who is it for? How does it work? And why does it matter? Let's put ourselves in the posture of Nicodemus and come to Jesus to see if he can help us to answer these questions. First of all, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel of Jesus is not given to us with a definition, but Jesus gives it to Nicodemus as an image, a word picture. He says that you and I have to be born again. Now, as soon as you and I hear the phrase of someone being born again or a born again Christian, we actually think of somebody who's really, really zealous and religious. I want you to park that and set that aside for a little bit and let's enter into this word picture that Jesus gave oh so long ago. The first thing is that you and I are born. Max Lucado tells the story of a time when a group of his family members, extended family members, were together and in this labor and delivery room for the birth of a family member, the birth of a new daughter. And because this labor and delivery was taking longer than expected and all of the effort that was being exerted, uh, the grandmother, the soon-to-be grandmother was there and the, the son was standing next to her and he turned to his mother as he's watching all of this unfold and all of the effort at this first birth. And he turned to his mother and he said, for every time I ever talked back to you, I am so, so sorry. And so Max Licato says that a, a birth requires a capable parent much more than it does an able infant. I love how John Orberg describes it. He says it like this. He says, you were never less competent on the day, any day of your life than the day you were born. You are weaker, slower, dumber, slimier, least coordinated, least developed in IQ, and of a higher nuisance factor that day than any other day of your existence. A birthday is grace. If you have 100 birthdays, you actually get a card from the President of the United States. What did you do? Just didn't die. That's grace. The first part of this image of us being born is that you and I come to understand that life is a gift of grace. But then Jesus says we don't just have to be born, we have to be born again, born a second time, born squared, if you will. How is it that there is a second birth. Well, if you stop to think about it, your first birth determines a lot of what goes on in your life. Your first birth determines who your parents are, what country you're born in, what your culture is like, what language you will speak, what kind of foods you will eat, uh, where you are born and into what family you're born. That birth determines, you know, uh, how much you're going to have or how little you're going to have, what type of education you're going to receive. It determines uh, kind of your social network and who you're going to be a part of. Where you're born, that first birth determines a lot of your life. But here's the interesting thing for me. The interesting thing for me is I know people who were born in the most incredible of circumstances. They have everything at their fingertips that anybody could possibly want. And they're absolutely miserable. And I know people who were born 
in abject poverty. And they are absolutely and supremely happy. How can that be? Well, the reason that we know that that happens is that yes, every birth is an act of grace. But some people live out of that grace and some people don't. Mark Twain quipped it like this. He said, the two most important days of your life are the day that you were born and the day that you discover why. Have you discovered why you were born? Are you not only able to recognize that life is grace, but you are able to live out of that kind of grace. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but it is the spirit who gives birth to the spirit. Are you able to live out of a second kind of grace, a second birth? So the first question is, what is the gospel? The second question is, who is it for? So if the gospel is all about us living out of the grace that God has given to us, the second question is, well, who is that grace given to? Who's it for? Let's look at the beginning of what it says here in John chapter 3 when we meet Nicodemus. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, let's pause and let's look at this verse up on the screen. Let's look at it for clues. First, we see it's working backwards that he calls Jesus Rabbi. Well, Jesus has never been to rabbinical school that we know of. And so he's being incredibly courteous. He comes to Jesus at night, which means that he's being cautious. The reason he comes at night wasn't because there was an opportunity during the day but because he doesn't want to get caught coming to Jesus. We see that he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. In other words, he is educated. He is a prominent member of the community. He is wealthy. He has significant influence in the community. We also understand um, that his name is Nicodemus. It comes from kind of this understanding of victory. And so he was named for something of kind of someone who might conquer. And then we also find out that he's a Pharisee. All right, now let's pause there for a moment and think, you may not know a lot about first century kind of different figures and characters and what people were like in the ancient word, but, world, but you're probably familiar with the word Pharisee. And let me just ask you, were Pharisees known for being religious or irreligious? Were Pharisees more like the younger son in the story of the prodigal son, or is he more like the older brother? Well, of course, he's more like the older brother. We, even today, we know of Pharisees as being super, super, super religious people. He's incredibly devout. Here's what I don't want you to miss. When we think of someone needing to be born again, we think of God making sure that he goes to all the irreligious people to make sure that they become more religious. That's kind of what our mental map is. Jesus gives this image of the gospel. Jesus gives this confrontation of the gospel to somebody who is already very zealous and loves the Lord. In other words, the gospel is just as important for the irreligious and for the religious. 
Later in John 3.16, we, we learn of for God so loved the world that he gave his one, one and only son. And then I love it in the King James, that whosoever believes in him. Who's the gospel for? Whoever. Whosoever. And that means you can be religious or irreligious. The grace of God is just as important for anyone regardless of your circumstances. And so one of my teachers, Dallas Willard, put it like this. You are not saved because you are right. You are right because you are saved. Oh, do you see how important this is? You don't get to be saved because you got the answers right on the heavenly exam. You are saved. You are given the grace of God. And because of that, you and I are made right. You know, religion is all about a self-righteousness. And people who are self-righteous, regardless of the means, are a part of that whoever. All of us need Jesus. All of us need the gospel. And so what is the gospel? It's this picture of being born again. And then there's this question of who's it for? It's for all of us. The third question? The third question is, how does it work? And just as Jesus doesn't so much give us a definition but a word picture, the best way to honor the way that Jesus would describe something and to say, how does the gospel work? is to tell a story. I want to show you a picture of a church in Upper Nyack, New York. And I want you to picture that this is a true story of a family where there's a young boy, maybe eight, nine years old. His name is Wells Crowther. And he's getting ready for church with his family. And he looks at his dad's suit and he looks at his own suit and he notices that there's a difference. What he notices in his dad's suit is that his dad has a pocket square. And he asks his dad if he can have one of those. His dad says, sure. And he goes to his drawer and he pulls one out. And he puts it in as he's dressing his son. But he gives his son something else that day. And he says, son, this, as he's putting in the pocket square, this is for show. And then he hands his son a, a red bandana. And he says, keep this in your pocket. If you need to blow your nose, this is what you should use. You know, that son had watched his dad with, as a banker, kind of carry both of those two things. He had a blue bandana, his father did. And so when his son got that red bandana, he, no matter where he went or what he was wearing, he always had that red bandana. Let me show you a picture of Wells when he was a child with that red bandana around his head. Well, that boy grew up, and he ended up going to Boston College, and he played lacrosse there, and he graduated with the ideals of that Jesuit institution, excel and excel for others. And so he got a fantastic job at a company called Sandler O'Neill, a firm that was located on the 104th floor of this tower, of the one that was the South Tower for the World Trade Center. He was a part of the same firm as a good friend of mine by the name of Todd Ranke. 
Well, on September 11th, 2001, there were 14,154 people in those two buildings. At 8.46 in the morning, an airplane hit the North Tower. When that happened, Wells called his mother and left her a voicemail letting her know that he was okay. A little while later, he and most people who could were making their ways down all of the staircases and he found himself on the 78th floor when by the time at 9.03, the second plane hit the South Tower, all of a sudden they found themselves in an inferno. Many of the people on the 78th floor with that lobby of the Bay of Elevators that was supposed to get them the express to the, to the ground floor, many people had been injured. Smoke was filling and people couldn't know where to go. You see, Wells had trained as a volunteer firefighter with his dad. And he had actually grown up shining and caring for all of the fire equipment from this place. And so Wells decided that he would take charge. And he found the one staircase that was still open and available and that wasn't torn apart. And he started to help to assist people down. He actually carried one woman on his shoulders from the 78th floor down to the 61st floor where the heat and the smoke had actually dissipated. It was at that point that he put her down and asked some other people to help her to continue to go down the march to the bottom. It was at that point when he turned to them and explaining what he was doing. And he looked at him and he said, I'm going back up. He knew that there were more to save, more to rescue. They didn't know his name. They didn't know where he came from. They didn't know who he was. The only thing that they could later piece together that this was the same person was that here was a guy wearing a suit and yet he had a red bandana. If you go to the 9-11 Memorial today, you will see an exhibit there that contains one of his red bandanas. And to the best of their ability, 12 people can attribute their personal rescue, their salvation, their life to a man with a red bandana. Tom Rinaldi, in chronicling the story in this book that I read this week by that same title, he asks this question. What would you do in the last hour of your life? Where would you be? What would it look like? Who would you remember? If you could know, would you want to? Would you receive that knowledge with dread or accept it with grace? Would there be a peace to be gained or one that would already have been granted? If you understood the mortal clock, what would you trade to gain another hour and then another after that? What prayer would you recite? What deal would you make? What promise would you offer for this not to be the end? Look upon the common fears that your final hour might be. Take the typical conditions, the likely circumstances. You know them. You've seen them. You've lost others to them. The ebbing mind or the failing body, the loss of family, the lack of purpose. 
the fact of pain or the regimen of medicines, in a home not of your own, in prisons of old age, receiving the full force of its sentencing, there might be a mercy in the dulling of your intellect. After seven or eight or nine decades, maybe the final hours would feel like a reward. But imagine it's sooner. It's an instant from now. One blink from current, it's the line after the line after your reading. The decades for you haven't stacked like wood for the winter. The years haven't collected in enough albums. You haven't reached any golden age, twilight time. You're not winding down or scaling back, going gray or getting slow. You're not there yet. You're not close. You're not old. Legacy is a distant and irrelevant word. It's for obituaries and sports columns. The hours are yours until the last one arrives. If you knew that this might be that time, that this could be the end, this may be the very last hour you have to spend, what would you do? And what if that hour, with all of its horror, its all of its loss, its panic, its shock, still gave you a choice to fly from risk, to escape, to live, what would you do then with the last hour of your life? It only took 10 seconds for the South Tower to crumble and to fall into the cavern of the earth. It was only one hour. And yet in that hour, we know that he chose to save. His body was found in the same location of 10 firefighters. He wasn't paid. It wasn't his job. And yet he had trained for a moment like this to be ready to excel for others every time he went to church, every time he put that red bandana in his pocket. He knew what his life was for. His father, when he is interviewed, quotes the Gospel of John. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down your life for a friend. Here's a picture of his father as he often gives tribute and says those sacred words. For God so loved the world that he gave. How does the gospel work? It works by loving self-sacrifice. And so what is the gospel? It's a new birth. Who is it for? It's for all of us. How does it work? It works by loving self-sacrifice. And why does it matter? Oh, it matters so much. The way that we know that it matters is that we know from the significance of that if the universe really is generated out of loving self-sacrifice, if we truly have an opportunity to not just exist, 
but to be alive. And not just to be alive now, but alive eternally, both in terms of its duration and its durability and its quality. Tom Rinaldi wrote this about the family. He said, faith was a meaningful in the Crowther family. It was not an ornament to display or a verse to memorize. It provided a path to living and it followed a glorious destination in the end. But there was a lot to do in between and not all of it among the pews or on one's knees. For you see, you and I have the opportunity to live. And that living isn't about becoming more and more religious. It's about becoming more and more alive. And the only way we're able to do that is by trusting more and more. Whatever happened to Nicodemus, that man who came at night to Jesus, we don't know a lot. Here's a piece of art that describes him coming at night. You know what we do know? We do know that in the broad light of day when Jesus' body was taken from the cross and that they needed someone to care for the body, Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, who would have been forbidden by the law of touching a dead body, he is the one who helped to carry and embalm and prepare the body of Jesus for its burial. He was there in the last hour. And he knew it was all about loving self-sacrifice. You know that Bible study at the beginning that I told you about? that group of guys that had gotten together where someone was like, hey, are you trying to make us more religious? I started that Bible study as one of my responses as a New York City area pastor right after the following of 9-11. The first study we did was a book that was called The Life You've Always Wanted. My friends... I know I'm a pastor of a church, but the goal is for not you and me to become more and more religious, is to become more fully alive. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us to not just see life as an act of grace in our birth, but help us to enter into that spiritual birth where we recognize that we were not only born, but now we can discover why. Lord, I pray for all of us to experience the renewal of that new birth, for us to be born again and again and again, to give us a new way to see and a new way to be. Lord, I pray that the gospel would come alive for us in a whole new way. And for anybody who has ever crossed that threshold of faith and has learned to trust you and who now counts themselves among those who would say, I'm a part of the whosoever. Lord, forgive me for not living out of the loving self-sacrifice of your son and our savior who gave his life as a gift for the ransom for many. 
and help each and every one of us to discover new horizons, new vistas, new joys from what it means to not just exist, but to be alive eternally and abundantly. And we pray these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen.